Psalm 8 this morning, uh, which is a famous passage, right? To, to those of you who've maybe grown up in the church, or if you've been around these circles for a while, you've seen Psalm 8 show up. It's usually one of those Psalms, to be honest, like Psalm 110 and Psalm 2, where we do the Jesus Duke right away. Do you know the Jesus Duke? Or is that just an old school term? Jump to Jesus right away. Uh, in other words, you're in here, we're going to look at Psalm 8, but you look at something else, you look at just Jesus right away instead of spending some time and letting it unfold and give us a better etch of who Jesus is. We're going to spend time in Psalm 8, is my point, and not just jump to Jesus right away. But we get there because he's the ideal human. Psalm 8 is one of those passages to me that helps us, those of us, maybe it's not all of us, get out of our distraction. Get outside of our heads, maybe our hearts. Maybe you've been someone who's been discomforted by life. And so you're prone to escape in different ways. Uh, you're prone to link in maybe with a device or maybe something on TV or maybe it's a substance. It could even be a hobby that you love or food. I don't know what it is for you or making money. We, we distract ourselves. Um, part of it, I think, is what this psalm answers. Here's part of the reason is we just don't think God cares if there is a God. Why, does, why would he care about my life? Does he care? That's the question pressing in to this psalmist's heart this morning. And maybe it's your question as well. Does he even care? We'll see that he does from this psalm in so many different ways. But I'm going to pray for us, and then I want to read through this passage. I think, pray that, that God would help my distracted heart before I read it. Uh, Father, uh, for your spoken word to come alive in my soul, in our souls, uh, for those of us who, like me, are recovering materialists, uh, where we believe life is just what's before us, and the next thing we can grab a hold of that can bring us a little bit of satisfaction. Uh, there's so much more on offer, and we are settling uh, for so, so little. Uh, help us in the reading of this word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Psalm 8, where we read about God's providential care. How majestic is your name? To the choir master, according to the Gittith. A Psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you've set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him? 
and the Son of Man that you care for him. Yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. He says, O Lord, our Lord, right? Not just some distant, aloof, dictator, benevolent being out there that created all things and now have left us to our own devices to muddle around in the world, right? It's our Lord. Lord being this kind of Adonai, which is another name for Yahweh, the, the ultimate ruler. So it's dominion, it's, it's royal language that he's using here to describe God right away. He's saying that's our Lord. And then he unpacks it further. But I'm sharing, I want to share from Psalm 8 for a couple of reasons. We are in the dog days of summer. That's the first thing. I mean, we were at a bowling alley last night, and this is first world problems. Uh, and it was hot, just as hot inside as out because the AC didn't work, right? So you start to notice the heat a little bit and the grumpiness and the tears and the breakdowns. And that's just us, let alone my kids. <laughs> Dog days of summer. The Romans and the Greeks used to call it that because of the star Sirius that went up in the, high, up in the sky and aligned with the sun. And they just believed that it created the most heat during the month of July and August. And we're in it, right? And it's hard for us to be positive as a result. So we need Psalm 8 to remind us of what's there before us. But the second reason, this psalm reorients us to see the greatness of creation and our place in it. It also describes the hand, or rather the finger, behind it all. And I just think it's worthwhile to reattune or recalibrate to that God, if there is a God. And I know that some of you are questioning that this morning. And I want you to try to bracket that for a second. And I'm going to come with the thesis that there is one. And that it can be seen in the works of, that are around us, in the creation itself. But if there is that God, if that's a given, how should relationship with that God inform everything about me? Inform my life, Right? In a room this size, we're, we're wrestling with doubt along those lines, especially if you're someone who's wrestling with the existence of God after years of battling religious rule following, and you're wondering, what's the point? I get it. I care about that. But I'm, ad I'm addressing the people who are feeling numbed inside or exhausted by the heat or exhausted by your life, the circumstances, you're not stirred like you once were, I think Psalm 8 is beneficial to us because it etches God's providential care. That despite our ambivalence about God, He cares about you, right? And your small life. And, and more than that, He gives you access to that care. That's what we see in Psalm 8. The psalmist says we need to access his care, we need to do three things. To look up, to look in, 
and to look out. Look up, look in, look out. That's the way I can remember what this psalm means. So looking up, verse 1. He starts with, O Lord, and in verse 9. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you've established your strength. So first... Verse 1 and verse 9 are these bookends to the psalm. They tell us what the psalm is all about. It's a song of praise. And that's pretty unique, actually, in the psalm, in the Psalter. Whenever you see a psalmist directly addressing God, it's usually for prayer of mercy or comfort or something, to glean something from God, which is fine. That's a fine prayer to have. We should be saying that all the time. And then he actually gets there as well. But he starts with a hymn of praise. And now keep in mind that all of the people within the congregation would be singing the same thing, despite the circumstances in our life. So if you're someone who's struggling to have gratitude in your life, you're not alone. There is a whole, there's congregations for thousands of years who were struggling with the same things as you. Different, looks differently, manifests differently. But they're giving praise. So here's the context, and we don't know the details of it, but it's David who writes this, and he prompts this psalter or this psalm. He writes it down, and the choir master is prompted to say these things. He's this famous king, and I can imagine in Jerusalem him stepping out on top of the buildings that were there at the time. And this is an agrarian society. Some places in Nebraska, you can imagine, that have the big sky might be similar, but he is surrounded in the evening by a multitude of stars, and he's just captivated by it. He's captured by the immensity, this vast view, and he prompts this choir master to shout about it, to tell others to shout about it. And then he's looking around at the congregation, and he's seeing all kinds of people singing this Psalm of praise from the cradle to the nursery, from babies and infants, where he would argue is the greatest power, the secret power, is, is these authentic babies that are praising God. Creation is powerful when you take time to notice it. Astronomers tell us that there are trillions of galaxies there's probably more. We have no idea. We theorize on how much is out there. And to put it in perspective, because my small brain can't understand what a galaxy is, really, because I was just in the humanities, not, not the science side of it. I like written word and visual things. Uh, but I, I'm told by astronomers, if you think about it this way, that just our galaxy, the Milky Way, think of it like a small circle, all right, in this small circle is, is like a dot, and that's where Earth is. In that dot is a speck, and that's Nebraska, and in that speck and speck and speck is us, right? Now there's trillions and probably more of those galaxies, and I don't know if there's other people everywhere. I don't know. Let's be open to it. I'm not the pastor of this church. <laughs> Come on trillions of these galaxies. Friends, 
creation is inspiring. It just is. But the psalmist is doing something else. He's actually looking beyond creation. He's become aware of the source of creation. The hand or the finger that's behind it all. And that's what is meant by verse 1. He says, you have set your glory above or literally over the heavens. It's a significant idea because if you look at other creation stories at the time in the ancient Near East, and David would have been, he would have known about these. What you have in the start is a conflict of created beings who are fighting together to jockey for position and authority and power over all that's been created, right? It's these deities that are created beings fighting to claim the rule. That's not how the Bible starts with creation. In the Bible, in the beginning, it's, it's an artwork. It's his opus. And what he's doing is he is taking just his finger and he's making everything that's been made very personal to him. It was just him in the beginning. And he's looking out and saying, you know what? Here's my canvas. And with the flick of a wrist, all has been made. Boom. The flick of a wrist, his greatest work. His greatest work happens. His greatest work is you, that speck of, speck of dust. And that's the climax of these verses. You are his greatest work in all of the galaxies. The Bible describes the origin, origin of creation with having no enemies. It shows creation not by doing a Jedi mind trick but in moving huge mountains, but his finger. He's the great, ultimate, true artist have you taken time to consider the artwork that's before you? Few of us have time and money to traipse around the forest. Are there moments in the day, though, that you're able to look up, take stock of what has been made? And sometimes I hear things like this, and I think we need to cut loose and run into the hills, cut our ties with society. But remember, and that can be good for your soul once in a while, don't get me wrong, maybe even once, maybe once a week. You can do that. But remember that this psalmist and this congregation are noticing the expansiveness of God's creation and his power while they're going about their daily lives, while they're working. So what is, this, what is it that's distracting you from taking a minute, from taking a beat to look up. For some of us, I think we're trying to escape life, right? I feel anxiety when I unplug from my phone. You know, it's a, <laughs> we, we are constant. I feel like one of the conversations we have daily between uh, myself and Jen are, hey, can you call my phone? Can you call my phone? It's like five minutes after I set it down, I'm like, I can't remember where it is. And that can be a good thing, except that I don't allow it to be more than five minutes. So plugged in, man. And that's many of us, right? We want to look at creation, but we want to look at, at it through someone else's video portrayal of it. 
And it's hard for us to take a moment outside of that to actually behold it directly. And we have access to be able to do that. What is it that distracts you to watch the leaves blow in the wind? Uh, My wife, Jen, uh, talked about this uh, yesterday with me that in her darkest days, and some of you don't know, but our, our daughter, our oldest, died in 2016. And in some of the darkest days that she experienced, she told me, she would just stare out the window, uh, stare at the window and just watch the leaves blowing in the wind. And that helped her to take another step that day. There's power in creation. Creation was made in part as a gift for you to enjoy. God's artistry knows no limits. And I think we've simply lost a hunger for it. And I want us to regain that hunger. To see God's utter greatness. And that utter greatness, if you bask in it, if you stare at it, can overwhelm you. You feel lost in it. I actually think that's really good to feel that way. The psalmist is starting to feel it to the point where he's troubled. He's shaken to his core, which is the next point. He says, what am I in the midst of this? He looks inward. He looks up and then he looks in. He says in verse three, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you've set in place, what is man? Or mankind is a better representation. What is mankind? That you're mindful of them. The son of man that you care for him. Not only are you mindful, but you care, he says. Imagine singing this line in the midst of a worship service. A cacophony of existential cries for help. I think there's an echo here. If you fast forward to Isaiah... In Isaiah's experience in chapter 6, if you're a Bible nerd, you need to look that, pastor up, or that, that passage up. He was a pastor in some ways. Chapter 6, you see this courtroom, angelic beings singing so loudly that it shakes the temple. I mean, do you, what would that be like? It leads Isaiah to fall on his knees, to hide his face, to lay prostrate on the ground. He says, woe is me. I am lost. I'm a dead man. This psalmist is saying a similar thing, only he uses the word what, which I think is significant. What am I? It's a Hebrew way of talking about an inanimate object, a non-human object. What? Not who. What am I? What is happening here? I think it's this. Let me describe it this way. It's very captivating. When you see someone experience an aspect of creation for the first time, and the delight, the shock that's in their eye, you know, if you've gone out, and I remember climbing or walking or uh, dying, lingering up uh, uh, Long's Peak, and uh, at the end, after I was vomiting, I was able to look out. I almost slipped off the side, I think. Someone saved me. I can't remember who it was. Thank you very much. Austin Mackerel. Um, grabbed my pack. Someone did, anyway. I, I'm alive. Um, I just remember being enamored 
with it and wanting to stay there in that moment. And I think of my niece, uh, Sophia. Uh, she lives in Qatar in the Middle East, hot, desert, bare, <laughs> rarely rains. And she went uh, to Europe for Christmas last year, and she saw snow for the very first time. And she just was in love with snow, right? Yeah, some of us get that every season, every Christmas season. We're just in love with it. And, and that, you know, in part, the psalmist is noticing that he himself is a creature, and he loves, he loves creation, but he's seeing something more. There's something that's crushing his soul in this moment. I think he is questioning if or whether the God above or over the heavens actually even notices him, cares about him. If he brushstroked the flick of a wrist, everything that has been created, does he actually notice me? And more than that, not, not just does he see me, because we can kind of believe a benevolent ruler seeing us. Does he actually care about you, whether for good or ill? Does he care about your ongoings, your relationships, what you do with your work of your hands? Does he even notice us? This psalmist is questioning, actually is dealing with doubt. And I think in this moment, he might resolve that he doesn't notice me until he moves on and realizes he does. He's feeling less than human in this moment as he considers whether his life is noticed by anyone on earth or in heaven. You ever been there? You ever felt that way? Do you know what that feels like to not be noticed, to not be welcomed? to be an outsider. Some of you are struggling with these doubts. They come up whether things are going well or not, or if life's a total disaster. When things are going well, here's the thing. I am tempted to believe the false narrative that I did this. And I forget that I ever needed any help. I forget that the breath of my nostrils is actually a gift of God, right? I did this. Nebraskans are the worst. I mean, and I'm a Nebraskan home. <laughs> We're the worst at this. We're so practical. I mean, we, if there's a problem, we, we figure out a way to solve it, right? I mean, look at the, you know, when, when COVID even came in, UNMC was the first spot that had, they, we were already prepared back in 2003 for COVID. And that's why that big ship went over there. And I think that's amazing, actually. But we rest in that. We think it was just us. Our smarts, our work. And in some ways, we did work. People work hard. I, that's not what I'm saying. But it's just it's to say that, actually, it's, I had no help at all. That's, that's what we as Nebraskans can tend to say when things are going well, until they're not. Then we wonder where God has been. <laughs> that's when we search. And I actually think that's a good thing. I think that you, when you finally come to your senses and you say, where is God? That's actually the question the psalmist is asking. Where is he? But when life is disastrous, we kind of do the same thing on the other side. Like God is nowhere. He's absent. No one's here to help me. Everybody's against me. And we have these two sides warring in this world against one another. 
I've done this. You've done nothing. Wait, everybody's against me. And so we're fighting about it all the time. And I just summed up what (laughs) violence in the world is all about. And the psalmist is struggling with this point. What am I? The final point he says is to find out you need to look out. Look outside. Look outside of yourself to see the God who's there. You look out. There are three things the psalmist points to, and it's in the the crux of the whole passage in 5 through 8. There are three things that the psalmist points to that demonstrates God's providential care. And they are, he gives you purpose. He gives you protection. And he gives you provision. So if you have the eyes to see it, to look outside of yourself, he gives you purpose, gives you protection, gives you provision. God gives purpose in verse 5 and following. Climax of the verse, he says, God has made us a little lower than the heavenly beings and, or, or angels and crowned us with glory and honor. Now, in the ancient Near East, you would crown a newly appointed king's head, king or queen's head. Psalm 8 is essentially telling us that God himself personally crowned you when he made you, which means that your life is actually filled with dignity because it's rooted in the source of all things. The true artist created you. Not what you do is the significant part or the value. It matters. Not what you do is the ultimate significance. But who made you? Who made you breathes significance into you. A Rothko painting is amazing, not because I try to replicate it. That would not be amazing. Some of you might say it would be amazing because it's squares. But if you stare at it long enough, like a true Rothko, and it came from his hand, something different about that. There's significance breathed onto that canvas. And so it is with God. He breathes significance into you. You are someone whom is creatively and wonderfully made despite the world's standards. Look to Psalm 139 for that reference. And notice that that we also, not only that our being breathes significance, but we have a purpose too. We're not just lollygagging along, right? Whether, I mean, I, I lollygag quite a bit, but... Even that lollygagging has purpose, if you think about it, for good or for, for ill. It's got some purpose to it. Man was given dominion in the beginning, dominion over everything, which means that man has priority over nature and God's created order. Nature's not over us, but rather it's under us, and we're called to rule it to be culture makers through it. What does that mean? And it's the book of Ecclesiastes, actually. Everybody's, we're all afraid of that because it's like, ah, it's exist. I don't even know what's going on. This guy's like nervous, making me nervous. But really that book's all about your purpose, right? He's given each of you a place to live, a people to love, 
and a thing to do. A place to live, a people to love, and a thing to do. That's your purpose. Now you say, well, uh, you know, uh, actually, the really purposeful people are, are maybe uh, sent out from the church to be missionaries in some place. Sure, that's significant. We need more. We need, we need a lot of more people that are called to do that, for sure. We're the pastor of this church. Sure, we need pastors. We do. Uh, and I need the person who's skilled in laying bricks. I need the person who knows how to fix my sink underneath when I was trying to take apart my faucet and that didn't go too well. Like dark stuff was coming out of the water. We need people who can culture make, create, make art, work, skilled, thoughtful, great with people, service oriented. And not only that, as a group, collectively, we're called to rule the earth, have dominion over it, And we've just got that wrong because we think that means having power over people. Like, I got the power, and I can do whatever I want over you. And that's that's really making it. That's really being significant. That's not what he says. There's other passages that talk about this, that your ruling should be more like God. Kindness, justice. We're meant to reflect him in being set apart, different than the world, salt and light, doing things excellently. Our work is meant to be a source of celebration when we see it, not of toil and cursing. We're meant to experience perpetual shalom, God's peace in our relationship with God, ourselves, inside of ourselves, and with other people. God made us with purpose, and he doesn't leave us there. He demonstrates his care for us, not only in giving us purpose, but also in how he protects us. Verse 2 I want us to return there because it's a wonky, it's awkward. Verse two, out of the mouth of babes and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. This English translation really does read a bit wonky. He starts with a preposition as a noun. And that's just a funky way to start a sentence. Unless you want people to notice Because at first I was like, man, these translators, over time, they wrote it down, and I'm like, what the heck? And I look back, and nobody changes it. They just leave the preposition in. Like, so it must have meant to be there. And in fact, you see Jesus later on in Matthew 21. Here's my Jesus juke. Just kidding. I didn't jump to Jesus right away. But Jesus in Matthew 21 interprets this passage. Right? In Matthew 21... He has these little children crowding around him on Palm Sunday a week before he goes to his death and rises again. And and, and these kids are singing songs to him. The kids are showing the adults what true worship is like. Kids are honest and real. They see Jesus and they get it in Matthew 21. God moved into the neighborhood. That's what they're noticing. And they're singing Hosanna, which means God have mercy. 
So before these kids come, though, there's this famous event that happens when Jesus walks into the temple, clears out all the people who are gambling, selling pigeons in the marketplace like it's just a domesticated area, and Jesus clears it out. He protects the place and the people who want to come in it and safely meet with their God to be renewed and cleansed in the spirit without being hassled or haggled. The same leaders who were in charge of the temple are here in Matthew 21 grumbling about the kids who are singing and crying out for mercy. And Jesus shuts their mouths by speaking this word. Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you, meaning his father, has prepared praise. And he left the last part off that says they shut the mouth of the avengers and enemies because he wanted them they've memorized psalm 8 believe me they memorized it in synagogue they know these verses jesus reinterprets it or interprets it in a deeper way he said you my friend are the enemies of god you're the avengers these kids are actually showing you what's right All you got to do, all you can do is cry out for mercy when God comes into the neighborhood. Because that's God who moved heaven and earth to come in to be near to you. And that should stop you in your tracks. God, have mercy on me. For I know not what I'm doing. And I need you. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus uses prepared They prepared, you prepared praise. He doesn't use strength. You cause strength or stronghold that Psalm 8 uses. But the two go hand in hand. The psalmist is saying, and Jesus interprets this later, that whoever cries out to God will be heard, seen, and God will hover over them with his protection. And I don't know what that looks like for you. Because we can all point to those times when it seems like God isn't really concerned with our life. And while we do that, I think we should see his protective care happening in a myriad of ways, despite our broken world. And I was questioning Mona yesterday about this. Like, What happens when life is just stacked against us or you? What do you do? And she testified to me that when life was stacked against her in a worst way in 2020, and she turned to passages like this. In Psalm 46, it says that God is a very present help in trouble. And she turned to Hebrews 4, verse 16. Draw near to the throne of grace with confidence and find grace to help in a time of need. She told me that God gives us present help And an extra measure of help. He gives us help and help. Help upon help. He gives us the super to the natural. And what does that look like? It looks like a heart that's at rest despite circumstances. Because you know he knows where this life is going. He gives comfort in time of need. He gives us help from community to rescue us from ourselves. More profoundly than that, we see God's ultimate help signaled in this passage. His ultimate provision, which is the final point. 
his provision in verse 2 and 5. This psalm does foreshadow Jesus. I think we have to do the hard work of, of seeing it in its context and applying it to our own hearts. But then it actually does showcase Jesus as the ultimate ideal person, ideal king. Right, let's look closer at verse 2. Strength is established from the least of these. And then what? The enemy crumbles. How? Well, Jesus, by becoming the least of these, God's only son, he gave up his crown. Look to Philippians 2 as this other hymn that reflects Psalm 8. He gave up his crown, gave it away. He set it aside to come into broken creation to restore it. And what that tells you is that Jesus actually understands your plight. He's fought your battles. He's walked the earth. He understands. He's not far from that experience. He knows it well. His spirit knows it. And he reminds you with his spirit that he's with you in those moments of your greatest need. But the second thing is, he, even though he fought your battles, he actually fought your ultimate battles. That's the bigger promise. Your ultimate enemies. And what are they? Sin, death, and the devil. And that's scary if you're a new, new person. And you're like, I'm new to the Bible and now he's talking about the devil. That only comes in around Easter. Actually, it's all the time, right? It's all the time. He overcame. Your greatest enemies, therefore, are not the liberals. They're not the calculated conservatives. Your enemies and avengers are behind the scenes, actually, in the spirit realm, the other part of this world. Right? They are actually looking to kill, steal, and destroy you. They are looking to crush your spirit, to get you to give in and give up. But God, in his grace, lifts up your head to take a moment, to take a beat, to see all the living things around you, to listen to the cries of the babies as they ask for help, to take notice and consider if God cares about placing each individual star in trillions of galaxies that are not the Imago Dei, how much more does he zero in on you to place you exactly where you are in your present circumstances to give you the extra help, the super to the natural in your time of need? So much more. And so you can press on and press in to all that life gives you. You have something to add and enhance around you. You bring significance. You breathe significance into the world just by your very life. You give inspiration through your art, through your work, through the way you interact with people, through your very being. And I think knowing that, as you grab a hold of that, it should cause us to shout out to others around us who are just as lost as you. We should be singing this praise around us that people know where your proper confidence comes from, right? 
comes from the source and the sustainer of all in life that is seen and unseen. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for meeting with us in this place. We cry out how majestic is your name in all the earth. Even for us who don't believe that in this moment, help that to be true. We might believe it to take us outside of ourselves. And I think that, that, you know, it feels like a sacrifice in the end. It actually brings us more delight. It brings us more satisfaction than we could ever get out of created things. Uh, That is our motivation. It's delight. It's it's delight in you and delight in the things that have been made. That we would delight in what we create and the love that we give. Help us, we pray in Christ. Love like you, love like you.